Fun with Failure is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hi, welcome to Fun with Failure, where we laugh with and at you about your flaws, fears, and failures. I'm your host, Dr. Alexis Carrero. Let's have some fun. Our guest today is Rick Thames. Rick is a visiting journalism professor and the Knight Crane Executive in Residence at Queen's University of Charlotte. He joined the faculty in 2017 after retiring as the executive editor of the Charlotte Observer and charlotteobserver.com. The Observer received numerous national journalism awards during Tem's time as editor, including two Robert F. Kennedy Awards for public service. He continues to work with local media through the Charlotte Journalism Collaborative, funded by the Knight Foundation and organized by the Solutions Journalism Network. Thames is also president of the North Carolina Open Government Coalition and a member of the Board of Trustees of the North Carolina Humanities Council and his alma mater, Pfeiffer University. He holds an AB in English from Pfeiffer and an MS in Communication from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. He and his spouse, Debbie, have three grown children and three grandchildren. Hi, Rick. Thanks for being my guest today. Hi. Good to be here. So we've been faculty colleagues at Queen's University in the School of Communication for the last few years. I started in 2011, and you started in 2017. Before we start, I just want to commend you for your passion and dedication and commitment to the field and craft of journalism and to teaching our students about its history and the critical role in society. I don't mean to overstate it, but it seems like it's more important than ever and also more vulnerable than ever, at least in the United States. So thank you for that. Well, it's my honor to do that because I just fervently believe that, and it's important to me that this tradition of strong journalism, quality journalism, continues in Charlotte and across America. Yeah, and it's it's been so evident over the past couple of years in our conversations with the school and with the faculty and the administration and the students that, you're like, you're the, you're the real deal, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> I can't you, help it by now. <laughs> you are the real deal. So before we dive into your flaws, fears, and failures, do you mind talking a little bit about where you see journalism today and how you feel about the future of journalism? Well, to understand where journalism is today, you have to look to the past and realize where it came from. And when I do that, I think about, you know, why does journalism exist and how did it come about? And fortunately, I get the uh, pleasure of teaching this in my classes at Queen's University of Charlotte and showing students where did journalism come from and, and why, did, why is it important. And we talk about, you know, the origins of journalism as sort of the beginnings of how the general public learned uh, first to read um, and then there was the, the advent of the printing press, which allowed people to have books. And then from books, someone decided, you know, I could do this every day. And so a person began to print news, what was originally news. And it's been going on for more than 400 years. And so the enlightenment that we've all appreciated and enjoyed, um, dating all the way back to the 1500s, uh, really began with the printed newspaper. And so, so the printed newspaper is so critical. Uh, when I say the printed newspaper, it was critical for all most of that time, I should say. But now it's become digital journalism uh, as technology has advanced, and now most of the uh, uh, most 
most of what were formerly called newspapers actually may still have a newspaper, but they're really focused on their digital products because this is how people want to receive their news. So, so it helps the student to see why this was important from the beginning. It's just as important today if you believe in a free society. And I do. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> so where do you see kind of where we are right now with what's going on uh, with the political rhetoric about, you know, the, the fake news media? And how do you feel, like, what are you teaching journalism students today about that? And where we're going from here? Is there, like, where's the field, of, where do you see the field of journalism going? We know it's online. We know it's going to stay online. But what about the field and the craft itself? Well, what I teach my students is to think about always what is the source. Go to the source and know that it's an authoritative source and a source that has journalistic principles in mind. That what we see happening with the web is that people now anybody can literally be a publisher, right? So that doesn't. There's no. There's no. Um, requirement there for a person to have gone to journalism school or to have practiced under a mentor or anything like that. So there's, there's a lot out there that looks and sounds like journalism, but it actually isn't journalism. And so what I teach my students is to understand first, what are those principles and to find those sources and rely on those sources for their news. More people need to be thinking about that than are today. And one of the greatest needs in America today is media literacy. Amen. Media literacy. Too many people are reading too much on the web that is not factual, not true. In fact, sometimes, in many cases, deliberately misleading, and they're, um, they're going for it. And it's, it's a problem. But it is a problem that will eventually get ironed out. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Well, and what's interesting, so I've been in the field of media literacy for um, 20 years at this point, uh, almost 20 years, and the first conference, the National Association for Media Literacy Education, was in Austin, Texas in 2001, and I was at that conference, and what's really fascinating is that other countries, Canada and Australia, they've been offering media literacy education for some of them for K through 12 for the last 15, 20 years. So in the, yeah, in the U.S., we haven't done uh, a super great job really making that part of the curriculum. It is in a lot of, and in a lot of ways embedded into the curriculum. You can find it in social studies curriculum. And, but yeah, there's just a lot of people that don't really understand the, how to find original source material and how to verify information. And it would be great if that were part of the K through 12 and continue to be part of K through 12. It really has to be. I want to go back because you mentioned teaching students to find and trust sources that operate with journalistic principles. Can you talk a little bit more about what are those journalistic principles? Well, one of those principles is to think about who do you report to? Who, who, uh, who are you responsible for? for and responsible to. And true journalists are responsible to their audiences, their, the public. Um, if you're in public relations, you're responsible to maybe the company or the firm that, that you've been hired to be responsible to. And you may care about the public, and many public relations people do, obviously, and they, don't, they aren't in the practice of misleading anyone. But the point of the matter is, at the end of the day, they have to, their loyalty 
is with, say, a company or a political party or, you know, you have to understand who is your loyalty to, right? So a journalist says, my loyalty is to the truth and to getting that truth to citizens. And I, re I, re I am responsible to citizens and I, um, I am going to be um, a party that looks after their needs. So this might get a little heady, but let's talk about the truth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that mean, get to the truth? What is the truth? What is a journalist, what is a journalist looking for? How do, how do they know that they found the truth? Well, you're, you're right. The truth, you can argue all day about what is truth, right? Of yeah, course. Yeah. For a journalist, however, it's what we call functional truth. What is the functional truth? And, and that is, Bob Woodward, of all people, at one point said, this is about what is it that I know to this point to be true? What are the facts that I have been able to establish? To this point, this is how much truth I understand. This much is functional truth. And if you look around yourself, everything you do is based on the truth as you understand it at that time, right? It, you know, if you're, if you're in the courtroom and you're arguing a case and there's evidence presented, you're looking for what does the evidence show? Uh, people may walk away with just a hair of question about whether they got to the ultimate truth, but they got to a functional truth that allowed them to render a verdict, for example. Um, and, and there are many examples that you can think of in your own life to say, I know this much to be true. And then you build on that truth over time to get closer and closer to what would be the ultimate truth. And as we know, stories sometimes can unravel for years. And, and so as they do, you, you learn something, say, in this year, in this time frame, and you know this much to be true. But it may be 30 years later before something else is revealed to show you a greater truth about this individual or this situation. So can you give us just some practical sources? What are some sources that you recommend to help us who are trying to figure out what is true, what isn't true, what sources we can trust and which we can't? Are there any sources that you actually do recommend? Websites, news sources that can help us figure out if something is true, not true, mostly true, mostly untrue? Well, the first thing I tell my students is they're going to be and with every news source, there is going to be a perspective. Some people would call it a bias, and that perspective will be somehow related to their worldview. And so you're, if you're reading the New York Times, you're reading a different kind of perspective than you are if you're watching Fox News, for example. It takes two very different perspectives. And what I suggest to students is, is that they sample all of those on a given you know, situations. So if you're like thinking of what really happened here, then you ought to get a variety of sources. And through that variety of sources, you're going to hear a lot of different perspectives. And through those perspectives, you're going to gain your own perspective. And you're going to say, you know, I accept this much being reported from this location. I accept this much being reported from this, but this is, this is something I need to understand over here. And so I just, I just say to students, do not leave yourself vulnerable by only listening to one source or reading one source. You need to read many, many sources. That said, there are people out there who are attempting to get to, as close as they can, the truth. One of the great organizations is PolitiFact, PolitiFact, uh, which um, I'm a big believer in, which on a daily basis, um, basically truth squads, statements that your leaders are making, 
that your parties are making, and uh, you can find them on the web, politifact.org. Yeah, and that is a resource I really appreciate because they do they do seem to be and or are bipartisan, right? So they're not trying to push a particular agenda. They're just reporting on what someone said or what has been reported and then going back, doing the research and figuring out, yeah, this is true. Here's the evidence to back it up. Or this is a complete lie. It isn't based on anything. Or what I also really appreciate is when it's somewhere in the middle, because that it's, I think that also is what trips a lot of people up. Is it, well, it sounds right, and I've heard that before, and I think that piece of it's right, but this doesn't sound right. And they help really identify that tricky middle part, which isn't as easy to deal with sometimes. But then they'll say, yeah, some of it is and some of it isn't. And I appreciate that they do that. They do a very good job. Yeah, they're great. And you mentioned in one of our conversations and one of the courses that was developed, it was called Entrepreneurial Journalism. So Charlotte has a really robust startup scene and entrepreneurial scene. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? What does entrepreneurial journalism mean? I tell students who enroll in this class that they are in for a treat because in many cases, journalists of the future will be asked to create their own jobs. And it's about the evolving technology. It's also about evolving taste and the way that people want to receive their news. And so they come into this class prepared to um, embark on this journey, which is to get to a place where they have developed either a journalism product or service that advances the cause of journalism. So, so um, they learn a lot about creativity. They learn a lot about um, how to take um, a need and find an answer for it. We use the principles of design thinking. Some of the people out there will yeah, know what that great. is. And, and, and of course, as you know, if you know anything about design thinking, you know it's all about having fun with failure. That's what yeah. it is. So, yeah, it's iterative. Right, it's iterative. iterative. Yes, yes. And so, so they get the chance to experience that and to know. In fact, we, we stress in that class, okay, this didn't work. That's actually progress. This yeah. didn't work. Now move on to what might work, right? So it's a great class. Uh, we had uh, I taught it for the first time last uh, last spring, last fall, and I'm going to teach it again this fall. So. Yeah, that's great. I love that because again, f- failure often seems like it's the end point. If something fails, it stops. But yeah, with entrepreneurial journalism, you can just keep going. And with uh, design thinking, you keep going. Okay, you test it, you pilot it, you figure it out, you improve it, you test it, you pilot, you figure it out. And it's just ongoing. It's a process. And part of what I want people to think of in terms of failure is what what kinds of processes do you fall in love with that the outcome doesn't matter as long as it's improving over time? It's great because, you know, the students begin to learn that they never are completely finished. And, you know, they're never at that point of perfection. They can always go through another cycle. Right. And pick up something new so so I think I think it's something they can take with them regardless of where they're going to go or what they're going to do that they could become really key people in their organizations yeah that's just a that's a great life skill you know and, and I've noticed for teaching for so long also there's real apprehension apprehension that students feel you know well what do I need to do to get an A and when do I know when it's done but part of what I think the teaching process is evolving into is helping students become comfortable being uncomfortable. And part of that uncomfortable feeling is knowing like, oh, I, I could go through another round of this. I could try it again, but it's 
it's good enough. And this is... Right. It's going to get the job done. It's going right? to get the job done. That's right. It's, and it's going to get you a job, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so so this is really, you're right. And it's really interesting to watch how this is counter to the culture that the students have grown up in right. through academia, you know, and, and how they have to sort of throw that to the, to the wind and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to take risks, and I'm yeah. going to try some things. And if it fails, I'm still going to have a party. So, so it's it's really a different kind of mindset, but it's a mindset that's going to be useful to them going forward. Yeah, so much of education, I think, and especially what is happening in higher ed, is unlearning. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not just learning; it's unlearning. It is. So, when you think about journalists and in general, they must. What am I trying to say? I'm assuming that jur- a lot of people who go into journalism are type A perfectionists, right? So as a, right. as a journalist, how do you know when something's done or good enough? How, how do you as a journalist not become so obsessed with perfection that it causes complete paralysis? Because if you get something wrong, if you publish something and it's wrong, there are a lot, there's a lot at stake. Sure. So when do you know when it's good enough? It's called deadline, deadline, <laughs> and really and truly, I mean, uh, journalism uh, functions under this pressure of getting something completed, often in competition with other media, and there's also the need to have that communicated because there may actually be a public need there that needs to be met, and so so journalists come to expect, and and the best journalists love deadline. They just love it. They, they, they revel in it. And I can remember the point at which I realized I was beginning to actually enjoy deadline and, and have a deadline in front of me. And it was almost like a competition with myself to say, I have 15 minutes or I have 10 minutes. I have to get this set of facts correct. And I have to get as close to that functional truth I was talking about yeah. earlier as I can. And I only have 10 minutes to do it. And so, so journalists get to a point where they are good at that, and they only go with what they know. They don't go with speculation. They don't go with, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. We're not sure. And it's also okay for a journalist to say, this is what we don't know yet. In fact, it's important for journalists to set that out, I think. So, so for a journalist, uh, you know, they, they, they get to the point where they realize that you know, they're in service to the public, and so the public has to have relevant information, and often very quickly. There are other times when journalists can take a long time and can take a, even a year or two years on a story. I've seen journalists do that. And, and so they have a lot of time to check and recheck and also, you know, just um, take that story and go out with it. But, but other, other times you only have a day or you maybe only have five minutes. I've, I've put a story together in less than five minutes before and published wow. it. Right? So, so journalists, they, they have to do that at times. Yeah, it's a good thing I don't have your number because I would just call you and be like, I need to make a decision. <laughs> right. Just right. tell me what to do. <laughs> You're better at this than I am. Well, I'm always, I'm, you know, I'm often wrong too. So that's, it doesn't matter. Just right. make the decision for me. Right, right. I would definitely, that's a service. You could sell that. You could have a side, have side to, hustle. I would have to often say, this much I can't tell you. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Soreness and pain isn't always the result of activity. This is a 60-second wellness tip powered by OrthoCarolina. Prolonged sitting in a car or at your job aggravates muscles and joints and can cause pain. A standing desk can help. The key to alleviating the discomfort that sitting can cause is changing positions more frequently during the day. 
alternating between sitting and standing at your desk, in addition to taking walk breaks and stretching can work to loosen those tight muscles and joints. The perfect standing desk should be high enough so your computer keyboard is at elbow level and your monitor at face level to avoid neck strain. Before you start standing at your desk, take into consideration any knee or foot injuries and wear flat, comfortable shoes. This has been your 60-second wellness tip powered by Ortho Carolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com. What are you afraid of? Do you what are what's a rational fear you have and what's just an irrational fear you have? Hmm. Um I'm a, I'm a, a rational fear would be, uh, I have, um, I have a condition, glaucoma, mm -hmm. with my eyes, and so um, it's been well controlled for many, many years, and so it still is, but it's a rational fear to think that at some point in my life, at some point later in my life, I will be blind, and so this, this can be something that can happen, and so that's one thing that I have in the back of my mind. Uh, yeah. At times, so that's a that's a fear that's reasonable uh, for for a person like myself. Um, an irrational fear. Hmm. I'm trying to think about what that would be. Maybe I'm. I might. I'm not sure. I could jump out of an airplane with a parachute on my back. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a rational fear. <laughs> that's very pragmatic. <laughs> but so, I appreciate that right, answer. Right. But I'm not afraid of spiders or snakes or. Any of those kinds of things. Or so. alligators like I am. Uh, no, but I have seen alligators at work, and <clears throat> they're a scary thing. And, oh, and yeah. I, I've watched one attack. and it's Like up close and personal? Yes. I was actually on Seabrook, uh, which is south of Charleston, and oh. uh, there are alligators there. And I saw an alligator snap up a large bird in, a, in a, just a blink of an eye. It was frightening. I, I had no idea that alligators could move that fast. So Mental note, do not go south of Char Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid they're headed this way. So Are they? I was going to Are they in North Carolina? They are. They're in eastern North Mother Carolina now. Oh, God. Yes. So, right. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming, y'all. I'm closing <laughs> shop. I'm moving, I'm moving to Canada. Yeah. Oh, dear Lord. Okay, great. Now, that is now has just strengthened my irrational fear. It's okay. I'll calm myself down in a minute. Uh, let's get into the sort of flaws section. If there, if there is one thing you could change about yourself, what would it be? I, I daydream a lot, you know, I mean, I really do. And I don't know if I'm going to change that because there's yeah. a lot of moments where I get a lot from it, but Probably there are times when I shouldn't be daydreaming. I probably should be paying attention to somebody who's talking. And, and I find that, that that's something I have to focus myself on because <clears throat> I can lose my train of thought. Uh, uh, in other words, if I'm watching somebody and I'm supposed to be learning from that person, sometimes uh, I, I'll pick up a strain of something they've said and I'll move on with it with some, in my own mind and, and then I realize that I've, I've missed something. So I'd probably change that if I could. I think a lot of people would answer that way as well. It seems like with social media and our, our attention spans getting shorter that a lot of us are probably daydreaming more than we think we should. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you think there's anything fun or funny about failure? I think it's all about attitude. It's about 
and of course it can be about what's at stake because there are moments when failure can be tragic, disastrous. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, but but failure, you know, a lot of times people who become depressed about failure need to just step back and say, okay, that happened, but the sun rises again and there's another day and I get to try it again. And I think that's one of the advantages that journalists have is that they, they know that <clears throat> from day to day they, they get a new shot at it. And so, because it is daily journalism, they, um, they don't, they, you know, they're bothered by what, what didn't work out well, but they know that they get a blank slate again to start the next day. So. Yeah. And those deadlines too, it's like, okay, on to the next one. I mean, if you're, I yeah. guess if your editor keeps you busy enough, <laughs> you don't right, really right. have too much time to ruminate on what you could have done better or differently in a previous article. Right. Cause there's another one to write. Yeah. Right? So, so you'll do better the next one. Yeah, and so. with a 24-hour <clears throat> news cycle also, it's kind of like, okay, next. That's right. Keep That's going. Right. Just keep going. It's like, you know, finding Dory. Just keep swimming. <laughs> just right. keep swimming. <clears throat> Do you have any failure stories about other journalists or journalism in general that you'd like to share? Well, <clears throat> I have one that's funny, <clears throat> and it, it started off uh, as uh, panicking my newsroom, but it, it ended up uh, with a funny result, and it involves none other than Barbara Bush. All right. So uh, I like to tell that one. I haven't told it very often, um, and I've always felt for the reporter who got caught in this because I always said this could have happened to anybody, it, and it really could have happened to any journalist, but it happened to happen to her. So so um, I, uh, ta I'll take you back to 2002, and George W. Bush was running for his second term of office, and Barbara Bush was campaigning for George W. Bush, and she was coming through Kansas. And as you'll recall, Barbara Bush probably was the most popular of the Bush family, really, at yeah. that time. I mean, she was, whereas the Bushes were seen as more political, she was more apolitical, but she made a great campaigner because people all wanted to see her. She was most admired. And so when she came through on a campaign stop in Kansas, it was a big deal for our newspaper and, and for, you know, all media in Kansas. And so, so she, she appeared in a, a gymnasium in a community college just a short distance from, from Wichita, and we assigned a young, energetic, uh, ambitious, and incredibly promising reporter who to go and hear her speech and, and file a story on her speech. Well, gymnasiums being what they are, the sound wasn't very good, but as you would also expect, the, the dignitaries were arranged in the front of the gymnasium near the podium, so they could hear very well, and the media was herded to the very rear of the gymnasium in the back, and with the sound quality being what it was and the, the uh, magnification being what it was, uh, it was sometimes hard to hear exactly what was being said. We've all been there. We know what that yeah. sounds like. Yep. That's why most people don't want to have events in gyms, right? Yeah. But they had it in this gym, and there were 2,000 people there. And so it was a huge audience. Well, this reporter was in the back of the audience, and, and at one point, uh, Barbara Bush noted that she was now campaigning for the second time for, pres for, for president. First, she did for her husband, and now she was doing it for her son. And uh, she, uh, she noted that in that time, she had uh, gone through three dress sizes. And I got a chuckle from the audience, you know, just 
self-deprecating humor. Sure, and, yeah. and so the audience was taken by it, and, but that was the audience in the front. The, the audience near the rear of the gymnasium was not laughing. And in fact, people were whispering to each other, and there were a few gasps in the back and that sort of thing because, because they didn't hear that. They heard something else. They heard that she had changed three breast sizes, oh, right? No. And they were all going to say, they were saying, why would Barbara Bush say something like that, you know? And they were thinking, and then they would say, well, well, of course it was Barbara Bush because, you know, and since she's Barbara Bush, uh, she can say anything she wants, right? Oh, um, man. And so, and so the reporter was looking around, and she was hearing other reporters saying they heard that, right? And she was also hearing people in the crowd at the back who thought they heard the same thing. So everybody was consistent, you know. Right, she, she verified the information. She, verif- they, she heard verification through all the audience, right? And so she scribbled it down and ca- very carefully and got the notes, you know, just what she thought was perfectly right. And she went back to the newsroom and, and she wrote her story on deadline because it was an evening uh, event. And it passed through the usual um, test through the newsroom, through a copy desk, and the assistant managing editor read it, and assistant managing editor asked her about it, and she said, "Oh yeah, everybody around me, they all they all heard it. That's true. She said it, right?" <laughs> and he said, oh, "Okay, it's Barbara Bush, you know." And so and so um, I wasn't party to that because I was home by that time. Next morning, though. So 150,000 copies uh, of the Wichita Eagle have been printed, oh, no. and and the next morning I go out on the uh, to the to the lawn and I pick up my copy. I bring it back inside and I lay it out on the table and I nearly choke on my coffee, <laughs> you know, because I'm reading it and you know, and it says uh, uh, she joked, including uh, let's see, let's see, which I'm sorry here, um, speaking to 2,000 people. Bush offered 10 tips based on her 76 years of life, which she joked included 14 grandchildren, five wars, three breast sizes, and two presidents in the family. Okay. I looked at it and I said, that has to be a typo or it has to be a problem with, you know, spell check or something. Something went wrong here. So I called the assistant managing editor who'd been there that night and I said, Tom, I said, said, that she didn't really say that, did she? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, she said it. You know, I, I checked it with, with, with her, the, the reporter, and, and the reporter said, yeah, everybody around her was shocked that she said such a thing, but, but everybody heard it, you know, and so, so it, it's right. And I said, oh, okay, well, I guess she said it, so okay. You know, and so, so I drive into work, and by the time I get to work, there are all these messages waiting for me. You know, one of them is from the chairman of the state Republican Party. One of them is from, <laughs> from the mayor of the town. One of them is from the principal. And to a person, they're saying, that's not what she said at all. And so, it's, of course, it turns out they were in the front right. of the auditorium, right, at, of the gymnasium. And so, and so they, were, they were mortified, first of all. They thought they'd embarrassed, you know, the president's uh, mother. And, and so they were demanding that we do something, and they were you know, very, very upset. And so, so of course, we apologized. We wrote a correction, and we printed it in the paper. As I recall, we ran it a little bit more prominently, given that it was a story that had been stripped across the front page of the newspaper. Um, but um, so, so, you know, as these things do, it, it tended to die down after a few weeks. But about right, because this was before the interwebs. It so, was. It was. Yeah. So it wasn't that. It, it wasn't News something, was traveling slower back then. It wasn't a viral story, as they say. Right. right? Um, but... About three weeks later, I get a letter addressed to me, and it's from uh, the Bush campaign. And I'm thinking, 
Oh, brother. Oh, here we this go. story has now reached the Bush campaign. They finally heard about it, and they're going to complain to me, too. So You I, started I, putting your resume together. And... Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I opened the letter, and then I'm really getting concerned because I realize it's on the stationery of Barbara Bush. And so I'm going, this is from Barbara Bush. So I'm going, this is going to be rough to read. So, But here, I've got a copy of it here, and I'll read it to you. It says, All right, yeah. to the editor... I've just become abreast of your recent article, <laughs> Barbara Bush Wow's El Dorado, which was the headline. I very much enjoyed my recent visit to Butler County Community College and enjoyed reading about it in the Wichita Eagle. But alas, I must inform you of a misquote regarding my speech. I am indeed a bosom buddy to two presidents, so I shared some of the things I have learned in 76 years of life. That includes 57 years of married life, six children, 14 grandchildren, five wars, three dress sizes, and she wrote that in uppercase. There you go. Two governors, two parachute jumps, and now two presidents. Your article has left this generally outspoken mother speechless, but has given my children much to laugh about. Warmly, Barbara Bush. Oh, that's fantastic. And then, in her own handwriting, she writes a note at the bottom of the letter, and she says... I just wanted to get this off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I love that. And so, and so with one, you know, one letter, Barbara Bush lets us know that she knows about it, yeah. that she and her family had a laugh about it, and that she was, uh, took life more seriously than to get upset about something like that. So I thought it, was, it reflected very well. Yeah, that's delightful. Good for her. Yeah, good for her. Because that could have gone sideways. Oh, let me tell you. And it did go sideways with all the people beneath her. I'm sure. <laughs> so all of the people in you know lower um, positions in Kansas were mortified. And um, never it never occurred to them that Barbara Bush would find this funny. What's your definition of failure? Wow, I don't know what a definition of failure. Well, you didn't do what you set out to do, right? Um, I suppose. Um, I think of what what I would call failure. Nothing redeem redeeming value coming from this, right? Because I see some failures as something to learn from, and, and most of my failures, I find something from that that I can build from going forward, right? So, for me, failure is an opportunity to learn, and. Um, if it's an if it's an ultimate failure, a total failure, it's probably also a failure. It's based somehow in um, you know pure depravity, right? I mean, it's like you know, there's nothing redeeming here. There's nothing that can be taken from this. That would be the the most extreme uh, definition of failure. But I can't find in my life. I mean, when I fail, I usually draw from it and I I pick something up and I go. This is something I've learned from this, and you know, next time or, or, or in this next phase of something I'm doing, I'll be able to use this. So, so. I think that's that's great. It's also, I think, a trait of uh, resilient people, right? Sort of that flexibility of con continual progression and evolution and learning, and not again, not seeing it as the end all be all, but as just a stepping stone towards getting better over time and learning over time. Right. Right. You know, and that word resilience is an interesting word because I, I if you look at, I, I'm trying to remember the dictionary definition of resilience, but it, when I first looked it up, because I, I like it as a term, um, and I, I like to, I like to, you know, think of 
resilience is a quality that we all should strive for. But it's actually about weathering. It's about yeah. It's about enduring. It's about surviving. Um, you know, to to fight another day, right? And and so um, it's it's just an interesting word to me because most people think of it. I think it's just being flexible, but it's it's also it's also about walking away. Probably you know changed in some way, and probably um, and having endured something very difficult. You might carry some scars along with you. Yeah, and I think for one of the reasons I asked that question about the definition of failure and do you think there's anything fun or funnier about failure is different people answer it so differently and some people hate it, you know, and they'll just sit across from me and say, I hate it. I don't like it. I don't like to do it. And for the most part, I don't either. I hate it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to look anyone in the eye after I failed at anything. But so that idea of combining resiliency with fun with failure is that, okay, so for some of you out there that are risk takers and love to fail and love to learn, like, great, have at it. I'm jealous. <laughs> um, but, you know, for those of us that hate it and struggle with it, then, okay, so how can we have fun with it over time? So it doesn't become this thing we can't, or it isn't, failure isn't something we can't overcome. It becomes, okay, so it's just part of a process and then how do we fall in love and have fun with the process right and think of that as not necessarily more important more important than the end result if we're if we're working toward a goal but just as important right and of course it seems cliche to say well you 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 can learn from your failure right that i mean it's said so often right but the truth of the matter is that's how you move forward is to say if you if you understand it that way and you frame it that way failure is nothing to be afraid of it's something that you actually build from and so in my life and and i think that is true of journalists journalists learn that they fall short constantly but they're always trying to perfect it perfect it perfect it they get it as close to they can to the accuracy the truth um and, and i think journalists get comfortable with that world they get very comfortable with it and so they they they're um, they're okay with falling short um, and and learning from it and saying okay now I'm going to do something different next time it's going to help me. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, it's progress, not perfection, or progress over perfection. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why I'm so drawn to design thinking too, because it's such such is so built into the process of design thinking is that failure is how you learn. Yeah, absolutely. Right. When did you know you wanted to be a journalist? But when did I really know that I wanted to be a journalist for sure? I don't think most people know that until they've actually experienced it, until they've been out there. And that's why I tell people who are thinking about journalism, get an internship, check yeah, it out. Absolutely. Because it's one thing to study it in a classroom. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different thing to actually be doing it out in the field. Yeah. And so I had an internship um, after I graduated with my master's uh, at University of Tennessee so I, I liked what I was doing in the internship, but it wasn't until in my first job, which was at the Fayetteville Observer, um, covering uh, the military there in the Fayetteville area, that I realized, uh, for the first, and I had a moment where I thought, yes, this is what I want to do. And um, if you have time, I'll tell you about it. Yeah. Um, I got a call one day. The call, it was an anonymous caller. Uh, and those days, uh, your, your, your rotary phone was on your desk, you know, <laughs> and it was near your typewriter. And, and so you had to answer it. And I had to answer the phone. Yes. In the good old days. And this person said, uh, you don't know me. I don't know you, but I've been reading some stories that you're writing about these accidents that paratroopers are having at Fort Bragg with their parachutes. 
Um, and uh, I said, yeah. And I had. I had covered a couple of uh, instances where parachutes had failed for paratroopers and they had died uh, in Fort Bragg. And so I said, um, I have, yes, I've covered those. And he said, well, I need to tell you, those aren't accidents exactly. He said, they were preventable. And I said, well, what do you mean exactly? And I said, who am I talking to? And he said, I- I'm not going to tell you. I can't tell you because if I told you, I would lose my job. And I said, he said, but I can tell you the story, and I can tell you how to find that story. And so this anonymous person began to talk me through a very, at the time it seemed fantastic and you know not likely to be true kind of story about how Fort Bragg had ignored their own safety inspectors and were using a parachute inappropriately, and this was how paratroopers were dying at Fort Bragg. And, and, and I thought, well, how am I going to prove this? They're never going to concede to that. And, and he said, well, these are the documents that you need. And he began to explain what documents to ask for and, wow. and, and, and what division to be asking for them. And so fortunately, in college, I had been in a, in a law class in which I had been taught how to request for documents under the Freedom of Information Act. I got out my little textbook, I opened it up, <laughs> and I typed in and, you know, just as it was suggested, sent it to Fort Bragg, forgot about it. And about maybe a month later, all these documents start showing up. But they're not coming from Fort Bragg. They're coming from the Pentagon. And so my little request to Fort Bragg had wow. triggered a, re- a flood of documents from the Pentagon in which it was laid out specifically how a general at Fort Bragg had ignored his own safely, safety inspectors and that the cause of these deaths was, in fact, uh, the inappropriate use of the type of parachute they were using. And so I was able to write that story because of this anonymous caller who had tried to get other people to pay attention and couldn't within the Army, and he found this naive reporter at the Fayetteville Observer who'd been out of college all of maybe three months who could ask for documents and get the word out. And guess what? They changed their procedure after that story appeared, and they no longer used that parachute for those purposes, and those people stopped uh, having those accidents. And so, and so I realized that even though I knew very little, I had become a voice for this person who couldn't speak. And that was incredible that I was able to do that, being the you know, unknowledgeable person that I was at that time. I was able to use my, my little skill that I had to do some good. And I thought, if I can do that, I must be in the right place. And yeah, so that's, that, that's a not-so-little skill at that point. I mean, you're, you're saving lives. Yes, but, you know, the truth is, uh, you know, it was the power of, of, of the media. It was the power of the First Amendment, really, yeah. that enabled that to happen. And I was just that person playing that role. And I thought, I can do this in other times and places, and I can be helpful to people. Because I always wanted to do something that was helpful to the world. And I felt that this was something that I could do that was helpful. Well... You are so great at it, obviously, to have come so far and have had the career that you've had. And like I mentioned at the beginning, we're just so lucky to have you here in Charlotte and also teaching at Queens and you're passing on your knowledge and your passion and your the history of the craft, which again is just so important and so critical uh, to the students of the next generation. And I just really, really appreciate you for that. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
thanks for coming in. This was a lot of fun. I, I could listen to these stories for another two hours. Um, so I hope at some, pa- some point you can come back. I'll be glad to. It's fun to talk about. You can tell I'm passionate about it. So, I know. Yeah. I love it so much. It's so great. So again, thank you for coming. For those of you interested, you can follow Rick on Twitter at rthames, R-T-H-A-M-E-S. You can follow us on Twitter at funfailpodcast, or you can learn more at www.funwithfailure.com. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go have some fun. You can follow us on Twitter at funfailpodcast. You can email us fun at funwithfailure.com. And if you would and are so inclined, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts.